When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When you think of psychology, what comes to mind? Some will immediately conjure up images of Sigmund Freud or B.F. Skinner, while the artistically inclined might think of a Rembrandt portrait, or perhaps a Woody Allen movie. These days, many biologists view psychology simply as a historical precursor to modern neuroscience, convinced that what we've long called the mind is nothing more than a highly complex series of brain states. For University of Queensland social psychologist Roy Baumeister, however, all of these pictures are missing an essential element, dependent as they are on the long-standing assumption that to understand human behavior, we should focus on individual inner processes. What if, Roy asks, what's going on inside you is actually there to facilitate relating to others? Did you play music for a long time? Is it a guitar thing? Is that something that you've done ever since you were young? Yeah, um, I came from, my mother's side was kind of musical and uh, she played the trumpet. She was in some of those little Dixieland bands and stuff like that when she was young. Um, so I took trumpet lessons for a while, but then when I got braces, it was really hard to sustain. Right. Uh, so I didn't do anything. And then when I left for college, she said, well, let's why don't you just play the guitar. You, can, uh, you didn't want to waste your musical talent. You can have a guitar. You can, you, trumpet you have to play every day to keep up your, your mouth muscles. The guitar, you can just lean against the wall and grab it now and then. But you had never had any guitar lessons. I mean, you knew how to read music, obviously. But you... Right, but I'd never had any guitar lessons or uh, really understood the chords and things all that well. But I got a book and taught myself, and, um, and I practiced pretty uh, assiduously every every day for ten years. And um, 
And it was fun. I got to be in some bands and uh, nothing very good, but uh, a small time was fun. Uh, so I became a professor. I had to put it aside for a while, but uh, a while ago I took it up again. I'm getting old now. I, uh, the uh, thumbs are starting to get arthritis. I was wondering, are there no old guitarists? I go to oh, this BB King. He's yeah, there. yeah, he's one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's he's ancient. He was young when when I was learning in the seventies. I mean, he was old then. Right. When I was young, but uh, he must be over a hundred or something. But anyway, I, I noticed in a lot of bands they have old piano and trumpet and everything. But no, no, old guitarists. But I think it's uh, arthritis. The arthritis gradually undermines your your ability. You start to cheat on the solo because oh, that's going to hurt to play that one. And, hmm. Interesting. So I switched to play the piano. So. Well, there are, yeah, you would think that it would affect pianists, but there are many, many precedents of, of older pianists who play yeah. perhaps not quite as well as they did in their prime, but awfully, awfully well. We're still yeah, I find it's not nearly as hard on it. In the guitar, you really have to press and hold. And uh, also, it's particular, you know, there's no substitute. You really need that. Whereas pianos, I mean, it's just my thumbs that I have this. Mm. And so, you know, it's a small issue if I really bang it a lot, but it doesn't. Uh, a lot of the other fingers are doing the work, whereas the guitar, the, the thumb really has to uh, hold it all together and hold the pick. Right. And moving laterally a little bit, psychology, uh, for you, your interest in psychology, your interest, let's, let's just talk about psychology generally, uh, okay. it, as opposed to social psychology at the moment. Was this something that you had been gravitating towards in high school, when, or, or was mm. this or, or earlier, or, or not at all? Uh, not at all. Uh, in high school, I was uh, kind of I was good at math. I was going to go and be a mathematician. Um, I went to college based on who had the best math department. Oh, so you went uh, to you went to Princeton, right? Yes, for your undergraduate, yeah. and you went there studying math to begin with. Yes, it? yeah. But uh, I guess there are a lot of kids who come there with that idea, and then they see higher math. Uh, they sort of put them into really advanced uh, stuff that's uh, very detached from any anything you could relate to uh, or whatever. I did all right in it, but uh, uh, all the other courses were so much more interesting. So, uh, and I thought that was the hippie days and you had to be relevant and, and so on. So that I'd study philosophy and religion and, you know, learn the big questions. And is religion just a product of uh, human psychology or mental states? So, uh, and uh, philosophically, yeah, what do we know? What's right and wrong? All those big questions. I did that for a bit, but then my parents kind of balked and said, well, you're not going to get a job in philosophy, it doesn't really pay. And it was just when people were starting to consider that in, in college, so the transition between the 60s and the 70s as the economy was tightening up. So they said, well, if you want to go to law school or something, then you could be a philosophy major. And I went and interviewed some lawyers and kind of found out what their life was like. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> so you interviewed, so, so back up a bit, so you're in what, second year now? or, or Yeah, second year, right, I need, yeah, after second year I needed to declare a major. Right, and I, so you went and interviewed some, that, that, that's pretty forward thinking, especially in the 60s, goodness. Uh, to, no, it was, by then it was 72, so, okay. uh, but, but still, yeah. Child in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to know what that life sure. was like, and uh, I remember so the guy I talked to, he really liked being a lawyer, but yeah. uh, it didn't sound like uh, anything I wanted to do. Um, and uh, right at the end of, I'd been over in, in Germany in foreign study uh, uh, doing philosophy and I'd read some of Freud's books. And so the, the philosophers were debating right and wrong based on analyzing the concepts and all that. And, and Freud said, well, let's look at how people actually, you know, historically come up with right and wrong, how children learn it and 
how societies anthropologically and, uh, and I thought, well, no, you can get a, an empirical approach to addressing these things. So that seemed pretty interesting. So I, I remember I suggested that as a possible compromise. And I remember my father's reaction uh, when I said, how about a major in psychology? He said, you'd be wasting your brain. <laughs> that was his, uh, he didn't think it was a field for smart people, um, which he hoped I would be. Uh, but, uh, but you persevered. Um, well, he went and, uh, to his credit, he went and looked it up, and as it happened, he, he was working for a Standard Oil company, and there were some psychologists on the payroll who were earning, earning more than he was. Um, so he came home and said, oh, I guess you can make a living doing that. Uh, so, okay, if that's what you want to do. Uh, so, uh, psychology it was. Uh, Did you ever convince him that it wasn't uh, wasting one's brain, by the way? I mean, ind independent of being able to earn a living, those are two different statements. <laughs> Uh, well, we just moved to him. He's 87 now into assisted living home, and uh, he had to get rid of most of his stuff. I noticed he brought along copies of a few of my books, so he has them. Whether he's read them, I can't say. Well, that could be pride as well. But, I mean, <laughs> it, it, might, it might not have anything to do with his respect for psychology yeah. as a discipline. It could be his pride for you. Um, yeah, well, um, I don't know. It's probably getting late to find out. But, uh, yeah, he hasn't... Uh, Said, uh, uh, said negative things about psychology. I think really to him uh, a lot uh, turned on the money issue and the fact that you could make a living at it and, and do well. Uh, that's what distinguished it from philosophy in his mind. And uh, okay. uh, so it seemed okay. So, so you were given the green light <laughs> to mm -hmm. go on uh, and you're entering your junior year at, at, at Princeton and you declare a major and your major is psychology. And how did how did it go from there? What sort of courses were you taking? What was, how did your interest develop? Were you starting to think more? You talked about your experience with Freud. Was it, uh, were you thinking more about empirical studies right away in terms of human motivations? Were you looking at abnormal psychology? Were you, what, what, what was your area of interest? At well, the back then, I, mean, I was just a kid and didn't know that much. Uh, I thought, uh, well, maybe I should just be like Freud and I could uh, become a therapist and make money and uh, cure the sick. Uh, but it was more like Freud. I was less interested in helping people than in finding out the truth about human nature and ultimate questions. So I said, oh, I can then write books based on the clinical observations. Uh, that was no longer viable. I didn't know that. That, that bridge had been burned. You can't study uh, mentally ill and write about human nature uh, on that basis. Uh, and the Freudian psychoanalysis was just starting to decline in influence and popularity. Did you, did you study that formally at, at, at Princeton or, or, or not at the time? Uh, well, the first class I had was uh, by somebody who admired Freud, so we spent a, a good part of the semester on Freud. Uh, and uh, I did learn some of that, but I learned a lot of other things too. Sure. Um, there was also a time when enrollments in psychology had just gone up enormously, uh, so everything was overburdened. Uh, you know, departments that were designed to have 20 students a year were now having 100. Uh, that was the case at, at Princeton. You know, within like two or three years, it had gone from uh, a stable 20 a year to my my class had 100. Why, why was that? You think? Uh, it had to do with changes in fashion, with uh, or changes in the, 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 the zeitgeist, uh, interest in social science uh, was stimulated by the 60s activism and the hippies and all that. The hippies kind of had two phases. One was the uh, political phase and one was the more mystical self-exploration phase. The, uh, there was a brief surge in sociology enrollments. Uh, 
just before psychology, they went up very precipitously and, and then went right back down. That, that somehow didn't catch on, but there was a, a brief <laughs> group of people who did a lot of uh, sociology. Uh, the psychology one then turned out to be more uh, durable. Um, I was coming, I, you know, I was a good little boy from Cleveland and didn't have much background with hippies or anything. But, was exposed to all these wild ideas and the Did you have short the, hair, by the way, when you went to Princeton? Or? Oh yes, yeah, mm. yeah. The uh, um, but it had just been a little bit longer because I'd been in a band in high school, uh, playing well, and then until the braces got bad, but I had a mm. little Motown band I played the trumpet for. And, um, <laughs> but it's still, and uh, no, I was pretty short. Um, so you did that, and then you went, and then you went to. You decided that you were interested in doing graduate work. So at some point, you, I'm guessing, you had thought um, you're not necessarily going to be a clinician after all, or make your living in that particular way. You, or, or, or was a there a sense that you needed you needed Actually, to have at least another degree, or how did that work? I'd always thought I would get a PhD. Uh, um, I, th I wanted to be a professor or something, starting. As soon as I stopped wanting to be a general in the Civil War, I think. Oh, really? At, really? At, uh, <laughs> end of elementary school. Uh, partly my father had looked around and he had an uncle who was a professor and he thought that was a really good life. I remember one year we had to do reports on careers and I, I, looked, I chose the professor to do mine and looked it up and uh, yeah, it seemed like a pretty good deal. Uh, you could make, I remember, the, as much as $30,000 as a full professor. Uh, which was a lot more money than sure, it is now. Sure. And was certainly easier than being a general in the Civil War, I mean, uh, yes, given the time yeah, period. Yeah, the, uh, yes, yeah. the prospects were better. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, was, I was always going to be math and then philosophy, and so uh, it was a psychology. They needed okay. professors too, and uh, so the clinical psychology professors seemed to have a very good situation. They could do clinical work, make extra money, and, talk to people and, uh, and so on, but uh, it was very difficult to get into clinical psychology. They were having hundreds of applications for every place. Um, so uh, I thought, well, I didn't need to, to go into that. Uh, um, you know, a lot of my friends wanted to do that and applied, and most of them didn't get in, and then we were uh, kind of all, all screwed up. Even coming from a good school with good grades, it was just almost a lottery there. Right. And then I was also realizing that uh, doing therapy uh, was not as appealing as it sounded from reading Freud's book. That uh, as some people described it, you spending an hour a day every day for uh, several years with some very unpleasant people, listening to them complain about their problems and all that. That was not psychoanalysis. Well, I didn't know that, that that really suited me. And then I could also tell that psychoanalysis was in decline and one didn't know where else that field was going. It did, uh, it was a lucky thing for me. I, I sort of said, well, I'll just go to social psychology. I had a couple of great professors who were interested in that. And, uh, you know, well, I won't make as much money or whatever, but uh, uh, it, uh, you know, it should be a decent, uh, satisfying career. Uh, whereas uh, the clinicians, I thought, well, they're really, if they can just get into graduate school, they're set for life. Right. But then the ones I know who got into the field, uh, several of them have dropped out by now because the, the field's gone through such terrible uh, changes and uh, um, it's become 
difficult to uh, to make a living. Some said their salary hadn't really gone up in 20 years because the uh, insurance payments uh, um, pushed down, down, down the amount they're willing to pay for each session. So the, the old idea of psychoanalysis where somebody pays you a big amount of money for every hour uh, that you uh, have that income steadily for years, that's just no longer the case. Um, so, so the issues in social psychology when you started to go uh, to graduate school and you and you thought I'm going to your goal was to be a professor and presumably mm-hmm. you had identified social psychology as a as, as a likely if not uh, uh, a necessarily preeminent area that you were you were going to go into um, what were they what, what were the prevailing issues of the time of the day yeah they were kind of disappointing to me coming from philosophy they, they were very um, Unprofound issues they were debating. Uh, uh, it was cognitive dissonance theory, which is uh, people try to be consistent, and so uh, they don't want to say one thing and do something else. And so, if they do something else, then they'll change what they say to rationalize it. And, um, you know, I've come to appreciate it over the years, but initially it seemed uh, that's not the big picture. Very obvious, not very obvious. Yeah, just consistency. And the other was. Uh, uh, it's called attribution theory, or people draw inferences about what's happening in the world. Either you know, what kind of person is this that I'm talking to? Why did that person do that? Uh, what's, why did I get a bad grade on this test? Uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, instead of sophisticated analyses of uh, what was going on, they sort of uh, simplified it down to. Uh, was it internal to the person or external to the situation? And very simple dimensions like that. So I, I had a bit of a struggle there to reconcile myself to working in this field that uh, was intellectually quite primitive. But that, that turned out to be lucky too. The, uh, the field of social psychology become much more intellectually uh, diverse and open. Um, and so uh, the uh, or they're not perhaps as sharp as philosophers, who, but they don't do anything but think of theory, so they're the right. most rigorous thinkers. It's, it's a much more intellectually lively uh, uh, and stimulating and challenging uh, discipline than it was in the 1970s. And, and that brings me to my point when you talk about um, what philosophers are doing, and, and one could argue something similar for most mathematicians as well. Um, of course, as a social psychologist, you have recourse to this this huge um, um, spectrum of empirical devices. You can go out and test people on this reaction and that reaction, mm-hmm. and you can build an incredible amount of data, and you have this, this tapestry that you can weave of going back and forth between uh, intellectual hypotheses and then verification and back and forth, and there's, of course, a great deal of skill in being able to choose the right question, conduct the experiment oh, yes, in the right yes. particular way. And so there is that whole palette of options which is now open to you if you're yes. interested in exploring human behavior and human motivations that you simply don't have as a, as a philosopher. Yes, I, one of my professors in graduate school had that same uh, view. He said, uh, yeah, what attracted me to psychology was an experimental approach to philosophy. And you can uh, do, uh, do studies to actually resolve questions and, uh, <laughs> and reach some right. answers. Uh, it changes our focus. The philosophers are interested in um, right and wrong, or responsibility, or knowledge, or whatever. You know, they'll really debate the uh, borderline cases at great length. 
but in psychology, we can focus on the prototype, not worry about the borderlines. Uh, it's, it's so, I mean, one of my ambitions is to write a social science book on each of the philosophy questions. So I had a book on evil. As a philosopher, you debate, you know, what exactly is evil? Where do you draw the line and stuff? Eh, I don't need to do that. I can just take a broad, loose definition, but I can use our data to develop the causal processes, right. to measure things, to show what makes people do what and how they experience things. And uh, um, so, uh, yeah, they're both valuable fields. I'm not sure. saying uh, one is uh, one is better than the other. Sure. Uh, right now, it's a good time to be in psychology because there's still lots of interesting questions, uh, philosophy, uh, physics, always... chemistry, those, those fields that have been around for a long time, you know, to get to the front lines, you have to go a long way. <laughs> uh, and so a lot of things have been discussed and worked on and thought of, uh, whereas psychology, there's still a lot that's wide open. So th there's, the, there's the experimental aspect, there's the empirical verification aspect, as well as the intellectual constructs. And then there's also um, the biological side of things. So mm -hmm. I want to talk about this a little bit within willpower and, okay. and other, other aspects of, of your work. But it seems like there's almost this three-corner hat. There's the, maybe the philosophical, more intellectual, psychological, Freudian, what is motivating people, how do people make decisions, how do they stop making decisions, what's actually going on in their, in their, in their thought processes and so forth, and, and how, do they, uh, how do they restrain themselves from succumbing to temptation and all, all the rest of this stuff, um, which are to some extent age-old questions which border mm -hmm. things like free will and all the rest of that, which I hope we're going to have a chance to get to. Um, so one can have a discussion about that, one can go to a laboratory uh, or the street, or however you define your laboratory, and start investigating in a fairly rigorous way um, how exactly data might support this hypothesis or that, that hypothesis. But also one can then turn to uh, physiology, be it neurophysiology or be it biology or what have you, and start looking at physical mechanisms in the body that might account for this or that particular action. It seems to me that you're interested in crossing all of those boundaries and, and, and linking all of, all of that. Is that. Is that a fair Yes, statement? to get a full understanding you have to tie that, uh, that, that stuff together. Uh, um, there's been a big influx of uh, biological thinking into psychology. It was not there when I was in college. Right. And uh, in fact, uh, I remember my personality class that I took, the professor started by saying, uh, well, personality is something that you learn, that you acquire. The idea that you're born with some traits, I, I don't really think that's true. And if there is any aspect of it, it it's not, not anything we're interested in. Uh, that was the zeitgeist. He was not being unusual then. Uh, you know, today no one would say that. Uh, a lot of traits seem to be uh, predisposed and, and, and so on. Um, so the interest in the brain and such processes, the, the twin studies on genetic heritability of traits and patterns, that's been another, uh, as well, influence of hormones and other things. So uh, has, there's a much greater awareness, uh, I think, right now, the problem is we tend to think it will explain too much. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people uh, thinking that once we figure out how the brain works, we'll really understand the true causes of everything. But the brain is just sort of like a switchboard that passes on information. It's not really a cause. We need to look out in the social world uh, to see what's happening there. And the brain can't even do too much that differs. It's, it's best if it figures out what's really going on out there. Uh, and so the causes don't lie in the brain. 
the brain is just passing along information and, and working with it. It's a, the brain is not why behavior happens. So let's talk about, I, I want to get back to that because that's an intriguing, uh, that's an intriguing idea which, um, which brings me, I, I think, to aspects of what some other people think of as issues to do with free will and what is causing what. And in fact, how does the brain relate to us? I mean, there's this notion of saying the brain as if it is something completely independent from me. And it's important, I think, to try to clarify what, in fact, we're actually talking about when we're making these distinctions of my conscious self as opposed to the brain and where exactly the line is. And so I'd like to get there. But first, I want to talk a little bit about willpower and what your, um, what your ideas are and how they, uh, they do combine uh, your experimental awareness some biological aspects, my understanding is glucose plays some interesting role in some, some of these processes, and a general statement about what's actually happening when we are exhibiting willpower or not exhibiting willpower, what's actually going on. All right. Well, I came to this, uh, I'd been studying issues of self and identity much of my career and looked at self-esteem and self-concept and uh, self-awareness and a variety of things. And so self-control or self-regulation was a was a late one that emerged it had been routine when people at conferences on the self to say well we understand a lot about how people think of themselves and communicate to others and so on but we don't understand the self as an agent how, how, how does that work um, so that was the gap and I, I, I kind of thought well let's see if I could figure out anything there uh, self-regulation is part of being an agent it's exerting control over yourself um, and the answer that I came to after a couple of years of <laughs> reading a lot of literature uh, was that there's some kind of energy involved, uh, and psychology had just not used energy models in so long. I mean, we, we named uh, one of the effects ego depletion using the Freudian term because he was really the last person to say that the self uh, was made partly of energy. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to joke when I gave talks that energy models are so far out of fashion we're not even against them anymore. Um, but uh, but it really did seem seem to fit uh, that uh, uh, that that willpower self control worked like there was some energy that got used up. Um, I wrote this in a book uh, with two colleagues, and I was away on sabbatical. We sent it back. My graduate students uh, read it because I wanted to keep them involved. And one said, "Well, we could do experiments on this." Uh, so we uh, tried a couple experiments where he to have people first uh, do. Uh, one self-control task, and then go and do a different self-control task. So tell me a little bit more. What, what were the self-control tasks exactly? Well, uh, one was, um, I think the first study, uh, the uh, the measure, the one was how long they could squeeze a hand grip, uh, you know, those little exercise things. Yeah. And, you know, after a minute or two it gets uh, hard, or even after 30 seconds, because uh, it's it's springs pushing apart right. and your hand gets hard, so you want to release it. So it takes self-control to make yourself keep on squeezing. Uh, we had people to use their self-control. We had them watch a movie that uh, was kind of upsetting, uh, wildlife uh, dying and things like that. Uh, and we either told them either uh, control your feelings, stifle them down, or amplify your feelings, try to react as strongly as possible, uh, or just let your feelings go uh, however they go. In other words, not exert self-control. Um, and we showed uh, that either the changing your emotions in either direction, increasing them or decreasing them, that seemed to reduce how well they did on the hand grip afterwards. Because uh, they had lost energy. 
yeah, they'd used up some kind of energy uh, doing, trying to control their emotions that they then didn't have for, uh, for uh, the other task. Yeah. Uh, we had another that uh, uh, my, my friend Dan, Dan Wagner had uh, been reading uh, uh, something in Tolstoy. I guess it might have been an article in Playboy about Tolstoy or whatever. <laughs> they said that Tolstoy used to uh, make a bet with his uh, younger brother that he couldn't go five minutes without thinking about a white bear. Um, and uh, the brother would say, yeah, I, I do that all the time. So we may take the bet, but then as soon as you try it, you can't do it. <laughs> so we tried that, you know, think about anything you want, and, and in one condition, don't think about a white bear. Uh, then we measured uh, from stress research how long do they keep trying before they give up on this very difficult puzzle that's actually unsolvable, unbeknownst to them. Um, and so You're mean people, you psychologists. <laughs> yeah, this is not hard, this is fun. Uh, and so... Um, yeah, sure enough, uh, the people who had tried to shut that thought out of their mind, uh, they had apparently less willpower or less energy of some sort because they gave up much faster on the, uh, uh, on the difficult puzzles as composed. We had a couple control groups. Right. Um, probably the most famous study from the early one was the Radish study. Uh, this Diane Tice, my wife, and we were sitting around in the lab meeting thinking of ways to test this, and she said, oh, we, well, we should get like a big bowl of radishes and a big bowl of chocolates and say, uh, we really need you in the chocolate, I mean, in the radish condition. So they have to sit there eating radishes, wishing they had chocolates. And uh, so we set up an experiment like that uh, where, uh, you know, some were told to eat the chocolates and cookies. Others had a no food control. Uh, but the crucial ones were the ones who had to sit there with the radishes, as opposed to eating the radishes while all these They had to watch food. other people. Well, they didn't watch other people, but they were alone in the room with them. Right. Uh, and uh, we baked them with the cookies right in the room, so it smelled so very delicious and incredibly tempting. Uh, so that was probably the meanest thing we did, but uh, um, we let them have a cookie when the, the study was one. done. You let them have uh, one cookie? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they probably couldn't eat anymore because they were filled with radishes. <laughs> But they didn't eat very many radishes either. It's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's we we hoped do. they would eat the better part of one. Um, but anyway, then uh, in another room, they also gave up faster on a difficult, on another uh, difficult perseverance task. Uh, so there were, uh, yeah, there are half a dozen other kinds of procedures right. that we use. But you get the idea. You use up your willpower in one thing, and then you don't have as much coming for uh, the next. So right. that. Uh, and so, so what, are the, what are the obvious ramifications of this? So you look at it from an energy perspective that people mm -hmm. hadn't been doing before, and you think, okay, now I can understand. We have, we have a way of, uh, we have a hypothesis. We've tested the hypothesis. There seems to be some evidence favoring this hypothesis. So what are the implications uh, in terms of um, everyday behavior? Um, and and what, what are the implications also in terms of looking at perhaps a broader spectrum of human behavior from an energy perspective? Uh, well, uh, it's good to think big. Um, implications for everyday life. Uh, you realize that your, your self-control, your willpower is not a, not a fixed trait of your character, but a, a fluctuating resource. And uh, Yes, some people have more than others, uh, but uh, regardless of, of that, uh, at times you have more than you have at other times. And you want to understand what makes demands on it, uh, that the same person in the same situation will make different decisions, uh, including some that the person may be sorry right. about, 
depending on how much willpower and how it's fluctuated and, and depending on other things the person did that same day. Uh, you know, a big extension of this was, uh, um, remember I was, the, the idea was to understand the agent aspect of the self, the executive function. Mm -hmm. um, so controlling yourself as part of that, making decisions in the world it would be another. And so we uh, did some experiments to see if indeed doing self-control on the first task, oh no, the other way around we started, if, if making a bunch of decisions would then impair your self-control on the other task. And I remember uh, this study I was really interested in, I say I kind of held my breath on that one more than uh, anything since I'd gotten tenure. So, uh, yeah, this could be really big if it, and, and sure enough it did. Uh, it took a while because the decision-making people are very picky, the reviewers at the journals. Uh, but eventually we got enough data to persuade everybody uh, and uh, published a study, yes, that uh, making choices depletes that same resource. Um, so some people realize intuitively that your willpower gets worn down or whatever, but they don't have any sense that, that making decisions uh, will deplete you uh, uh, in that way. I had an article in the New York Times called, Do You Suffer From Decision Fatigue? And uh, right. it was like the most emailed uh, article for uh, weeks on end, and I said possibly of the, of the year, because a lot of people suddenly could relate to that. Uh, a year or two later, we uh, saw an interview that uh, President Obama uh, so he's decided he's just going to wear the same uh, same colored suits uh, right. every to day. Avoid, avoid that energy depletion. Avoid, yeah, he doesn't want to waste any money deciding what to wear or what to eat because, you know, he's got uh, tremendously decisions, difficult yeah. decisions to make. Uh, <laughs> as they say, that the decisions that come to him aren't any easy ones. The easy ones are made lower down the chain. He just gets the really, really right. tough ones, so he doesn't want to waste any energy. I mean, you, you can imagine, in fact, um, having your national security perhaps put at risk by Giorgio Armani or maybe, you know, something like that. I mean, you, would, you, would, <laughs> you wouldn't want that situation to actually occur. Um, but, uh, but more seriously, I mean, presumably people could change their behavior then. I mean, they would think, first of all, about maybe being, in, this is what I would think, and so correct me if I'm wrong, maybe being in better shape so that I could weather uh, the storm of decisions, as it, as it were, a, a little bit better, mm -hmm. eating in such a way as to as to have my energy intake tied to not so much social conventions as my own personal uh, timeline or framework or daily orientation for when I'm making bigger and bigger decisions uh, or more significant decisions that I'd, I'd, I'd want to be thinking of from an energy perspective. Again, mm -hmm. about this energy coming in and out. I'd prioritize my decisions and I'd make sure that I had uh, as much strength as possible to be able to uh, render these decisions, well, presumably better. I mean, I guess that's another thing uh, that, that I was going to ask you. It's one thing to be able to make a decision. It's another thing to make, of course, a good decision as opposed to a bad decision. Right. So it's, uh, it's, not clear, it's not clear that energy is necessarily tied to efficacious decisions. It's certainly tied to the ability to make decisions, maybe. Yeah, they're very... F uh, most of the evidence on this is that you make better decisions when you have, have more energy. What happens when people are in this depleted state where their willpower is down is they start to take shortcuts. Uh, they don't, uh, um, you know, they'll use just one criterion instead of two. Uh, or if there's a lot of information, they just sort of uncritically put it all in rather than saying, no, these things should really be irrelevant and I should decide based on these. Yeah. Uh, there's a status quo bias, which is people just decide not to decide and let it ride or they postpone the decision. 
compromise is something that's reduced when people are depleted. Uh, you know, compromise is often a good, uh, good decision. But uh, so um, it it does look like uh, energy facilitates the good decisions. Uh, it's just a little harder to get objectively because you need a criterion for what is a good decision, sure. and a lot of decisions there there isn't one. Uh, on the energy issue. Uh, that took some evolving. Uh, initially, we were using it as, as Freud had as a sort of a metaphor, you know, the psychological energy. Um, so tying it into the, the body's energy, that uh, that I didn't know if that if that made sense or not. I mean, I know bodies <laughs> have energy, uh, but uh, I'd always hesitated trying to to, to say that. Uh, but a, a couple odd experiments uh, that, that turned up in unusual ways. Uh, that's when I remember we gave people ice cream uh, after they were depleted you know, between the two self-control tasks to see if uh, uh, the, the theory was um, if uh, resisting temptation depletes your willpower, maybe giving in to temptation will increase your willpower. Would have made us very popular if it were true. Uh, we're sort of calling it the Mardi Gras theory, you know, because you have Mardi Gras before Lent where you go out and right. uh, drink and carouse and so on. And then so on average, you're balanced. Yeah, so on average, you're balanced. <laughs> Uh, so we depleted people on the first self-control task and then gave them a bowl of ice cream and then the second. Um, and they did do better, uh, but one of the control conditions was we had them eat something that didn't taste good. Uh, but that also made them do better. So the Mardi Gras theory was wrong because that wasn't any fun. They, they, they didn't like that stuff at all. Uh, but uh, uh, but it, it worked anyway. So my graduate student, Matt Kelly, it was all, oh, the study didn't work. Uh, but I said, well, wait a minute, something happened there. You did, you did counteract the effect uh, in, in both conditions. And so I've got to start to think, if it, if it wasn't the pleasure, could it actually be the calories? And we've been talking about energy. Could it really be the energy uh, from the food? Uh, so that's at the point we started you know, reading up on, uh, on glucose and energy processes in the body and so on. And that, uh, that led us into uh, seeing that there's... That's a complicated link, and uh, clearly glucose is part of the story. We don't know that we've got it all figured out yet, but uh, that was a big move to, to think in terms of physical energy. Hence, you're right, is what you, you, you suggested, that if you want to make good decisions, you, you should get enough sleep and uh, um, get, eat properly and, uh, and so forth, uh, so that your body's energy supply is in good shape, because uh, it, is, it is tied to that. I've learned to uh, the immune system uh, when you're fighting a cold that your body's taken all the energy it can for that so your decisions will not be as good. Mm. You think, well, I'm just fighting a cold, I can go in and take a test or uh, do whatever I was assigned to do. No, you won't do it as well. I used to push myself to keep working whenever I got sick and uh, the physician would say, oh, you know, go drink fluids and t take it easy don't work. I think, well, I'm not out in the hot sun digging ditches or something. I'm just sitting at a desk working at a computer. That's, that shouldn't uh, be a problem. But, you know, I realized uh, you do that and you're starving your immune system of, of the energy it needs. Uh, and so then you're sick for a long time. And then the work I did was generally poor quality anyway. So, so now if I start to get sick, I just try to detach from everything and go and really lie down in bed and sleep for 36 hours. Yeah, you do that, you can usually avoid getting sick. 
And it turns out to be the most efficient thing in the long run, even though it goes against the grain. To so it's an investment in, yeah. in, your, in your future energy and decision-making processes and, of course, health, as, right, as you yes, said before. Yes, yes. Um, have you thought about or have you done studies that have more um, rigorously, quantitatively analyzed this aspect of energy? You, you pointed out the study of the, the ice cream and the, something which didn't taste as good as ice cream, but they were roughly equivalent in terms of calories. Um, and so the effect was the same. It, didn't, it, didn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't related to whether people were happy that they were having ice cream. It was really the energy intake that they right, were having. Yeah. So I could imagine um, one might have a study where, where you would replicate that, except you would give some people twice as much energy in whatever form. It wouldn't really matter, and somebody else half as much, and somehow be able to measure these uh, these things. Is it is it is it like? Let me be a little clear with my question. I can imagine, on the one hand, it, it being sort of like a like a binary situation, a switch. You've got your energy back, and that's okay in terms of what the threshold is. And on the other hand, I could imagine that there's a whole spectrum of possible energies that you can get back uh, you know, twice as much to a certain extent is better, and may maybe make you do better decisions than if you had half as much. Yeah, I've not done as much work on that. Uh, we had a couple studies that uh, one of the big early papers got published that was in there and you know the editor didn't like that one as much as the others and he said we'll take this out and we'll publish the rest so of course you always take that deal sure <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my sense of what it was is that uh, when you're fully charged uh, you're getting more glucose or energy or whatever doesn't do any good sure uh, but then there's a continuum of how depleted you can be and our current work actually we've compared when people are just a little bit depleted or they've used some of their right. willpower Versus if they've done a whole lot and they're really more wiped out, and those are those are somewhat different states, uh, but uh, that suggests how much uh, input, how much ice cream or, or glucose or whatever you you would need to get back to zero. That would be different depending on on how, how far uh, how down you are. you are. Right. Yeah. Yes. And and presumably at, at some point, and maybe I'm being too adding too much of a energetic structure on this, but at some point you might be able to have some kind of theory of putting the Putting some limits on on how much energy various choices actually take, so not rigorously, not not to, not to the you know not to the millicalorie or whatever it is of, of these things, but you might be able to say, well, choices like this in this particular equivalence class, they typically take this amount of energy, and so to get back up, you would need uh, you would need to to rescue your your depletion rate by having such and such energy on the other side. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, I, yes, uh, we don't. Uh, I, I don't know enough of. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think the decision area has enough of a framework really to uh, to give a taxonomy of decisions. Um, we can say the more complicated ones will take more uh, energy. We have found a couple things where there's an obvious right answer or an obvious best choice that doesn't seem to deplete people as much. Sure. Uh, it's sort of struggling to find a criterion to uh, make the. That's one thing. Uh, also, between a couple options when you, when you're choosing, it's uh, how much you miss the things you're not getting in the ones you didn't choose. That also uh, seems to be a big factor in how depleted people get. Hmm. So you're choosing between two cars and. Uh, you know, one has a, a color that you like or whatever, but the other is better in other respects. So you'll have some depletion from missing that uh, that color. If you had another unique feature that you won't get, then you uh, uh, then you have more uh, more depleted. Right. Do, do you do you have a a certain 
time of the day with respect to when you're eating or when you're sleeping, when you personally now opt for making more significant decisions? Hmm. Um, well, um, no, I guess it would be the short answer. <laughs> uh, except I know not to do it when I'm wiped out or uh, you know, at the end of a long, difficult day. Uh, so uh, I have become a little bit sensitive uh, to that. Uh, um, and uh, I, I do more of this uh, the tough decision look at all the information and try to take it in without making the decision right away and then let it go, sleep on it for a while, let your unconscious mind work on it and then come back again sometime when I'm reasonably fresh and face the decision and make the choice there. I think that's the best way. There are morning people and evening people, probably based on the difference in your biological clock. Um, and I've always been a long clock uh, as an, an evening sort of person. Uh, I would like to have there be a 27 or 28 hour day, not just so I could get more done, but uh, that that would suit me. Uh, they say as you get old, you, you get shorter, and, uh, start falling asleep earlier and waking up earlier. I'm still waiting for that to to kick in. That would be, <laughs> that'll be helpful. Um, but uh, so if you're an evening person, then you, you do have more energy in the evening, and unless you knocked yourself out all day, that would be a better time. Uh, other people are morning people, and that's when they have their best energy. Um, uh, so uh, yeah. uh, there's a best time for for each person, each which is not the same uh, as for others. Uh, so that interacts with how many demands uh, have drained your willpower as the day wore on. But you haven't personally modified your decision-making schedule based upon these results, other than what you just told me, which is if you're feeling weak and depleted, you take different sorts of measures than you would have before. Right, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, you mentioned unconscious, and we, uh, I stopped going in the direction of uh, where I'd now like to go, which is to talk about the process of decision-making in terms of this notion of agency and who's making the decision and what we mean by the, the unconscious. Um, so maybe I can just start off asking you what you think the unconscious actually is and how much of a role you think that it has to has in many of the decisions that we make. Okay, well, it's been a huge change. The, again, I started studying Freud uh, long ago, and for him, the unconscious is kind of this dungeon of, uh, of uh, dangerous thoughts that are banished from consciousness and uh, you know, lurking uh, uh, wicked desires and stuff like that. Uh, nowadays, you know, conscious is more like your support staff <laughs> who's uh, working behind the scenes efficiently, helping you get things done. Um, we have to recognize that consciousness, probably uh, a late evolutionary uh, product, um, and uh, lots of stuff is going on in the brain and in the mind, uh, and only a little bit of it is, is conscious. Um, some people think, well, consciousness doesn't do that much, uh, that it's uh, just sort of riding along enjoying the show, but I, I'm rather skeptical that nature would have uh, gone to all the trouble to create consciousness just to have a, a spectator. Uh, so I think it's because there are things you can only do in consciousness. Uh, I remember I put it once that the consciousness is a place where the unconscious mind can construct meaningful sequences of thought. Uh, the unconscious 
can learn specific ideas and associations. It's really good at, at, at fast things. Uh, but uh, uh, sentences and paragraphs and, and uh, stories, and telling stories is such a big part of being a human being. Uh, but that, you know, nobody tells a story unconsciously. Um, in, indeed, to talk, you have to be aware of what you're, <laughs> what you're saying. It helps. It's very hard to, uh, to talk while you're actually doing something else in your mind. But if the unconscious is, is a support staff, as you say, mm -hmm. then it's just part of, it seems to me, this uh, neurophysiological stuff that I have. There are all sorts of things that I don't know what's going on in my particular brain. I can call it unconscious. I can call it uh, instinct. I can call it, you know, I can identify it as various neural firings or, or whatever it is. But it seems to me what you're saying is, let's take a concrete example, I can reach out and choose this book, or I can reach out and choose that book. Uh, I, broadly defined as what, what we all mean by my conscious self, decide to pick, say, the book on the left, and and then stuff happens. Is that what we're talking about? Or And somehow my unconscious may be... I mean, there are all sorts of things I'm unconscious about. I'm unconscious about regulating my heart, for example, right? I'm unconscious about all sorts of physiological aspects. Mm -hmm. That seems different than what you're saying. But um, it, seems, it seems like this idea of the unconscious as a support staff is just, uh, I, I don't want to say just, I'm not diminishing it, but is, is, is an expression of the standard account of uh, free will and consciousness, to use these glorified terms, that most people have, your, your man on the street, myself included, as it happens. Um, is that fair? Uh, is I didn't see, fair? what was the link to free will? So. Um, uh, okay, so that, that's that's a good point. I, I, I didn't specify the link, the link to free will. Perhaps I could, perhaps I could say it uh, this way. Remember, the unconscious can pretty much run the show. Behavior happens all the time in other animals, even without consciousness in the, in the fully human sense. Uh, so uh, we probably could function uh, to some degree without that much consciousness, but consciousness gives us the ability to do other things. I mean, animals, uh, you know, they, they uh, eat and sleep and reproduce and run around and do all those things, but the animal societies don't think of other ways to do things. They haven't uh, uh, developed a global economy or redefined gender roles or switched to democracy from uh, alpha male organization or anything like that. Um, so it's things like that where uh, consciousness uh, becomes uh, important. Um, well, okay, so that, let's... Um, maybe I'm getting confused by this, because when we ta start talking about societies, that's a whole different issue. When we start talking about consciousness, I'm not sure, quite frankly, that my dog does not have consciousness. It depends on what we mean, actually, by consciousness. Okay. Um, uh, so I don't believe like Descartes did, that my dog is some automaton. Autonoma. What's the word I'm looking <laughs> okay. for? Autonom uh, automaton. And okay. uh, consciousness <laughs> theories, uh, there are two levels that right. they sort. And, uh, and where I explain them in simple terms is the one is that we have in common with lots of other animals, and the other that's uniquely human. Um, so the simple version, the, the lower level, if you will, 
uh, is like with squirrels and dogs and, and, and others. There's an agent my, my, in there. My dog is a lot more than a squirrel, by the way. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that has uh, an experiencing agent. It'll make simple choices. Yeah. It feels pain and pleasure and stuff sure. like that. Uh, so that much came fairly early in evolution. Um, and so, you know, we call that just simple awareness. Uh, and, but then uh, consciousness would be all the things that humans have that those creatures don't. Uh, symbolic awareness, uh, reflective uh, you know, knowledge of self. Language. Uh, language. Uh, uh, yeah, language is an interesting one because I, I struggled on that for a while because the unconscious clearly has language because you can flash a subliminal word uh, and so on. Um, but it doesn't combine them. Uh, you can't f flash a sentence or even a series of words that become a sentence. The unconscious doesn't really uh, get that. Uh, I know a scholar Tony Greenwald says he's been following the priming literature for years and there's not a single study that passes what he called the two-word test the, to prime two words. Um, if you prime two, it doesn't combine them. So you can prime green and the unconscious thinks, okay, green is good. You can prime bread and we think bread is good. If you give it green bread, and it thinks, okay, that's a double good. It sort of takes conscious mind to see, oh, I don't know about green bread. Uh, that's not a simple combination uh, of those two. Um, as I said, so the unconscious can do words, uh, but to get sentences and paragraphs and stuff, it needs to put them together in, uh, uh, in consciousness. But if I'm, a, if I'm a neurobiologist, which I manifestly am not, but if I'm a neurobiologist and I, and I hear you saying this, I say, okay, you're using these terms conscious and unconscious. And yeah, I have an understanding of things. There are things that I do that I'm not aware of. There uh, mm -hmm. uh, there, are, uh, my, my mind can wander. I can, I can sometimes scan words on a page. I can do all sorts of things when I'm not actually fully cognizant of what it is that I'm doing. There may be some subliminal advertisement which can reach me and can in some way affect my behavior. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. But um, Intuitively, I can make a distinction between what you're calling conscious and what I'm calling conscious. But for me as a neurobiologist, if I have to draw the line and say, what is, what is conscious as opposed to unconscious, then I start feeling uncomfortable because I can't actually really define this in any particular way. Uh, you mean in neurobiological terms? In neurobiological terms. So I'm looking at, at, at what does it mean for me to receive a signal, say, what's happening when I'm getting light from, mm -hmm. uh, from this particular place, or when I'm reading these words on a page. And the psychologist will say, well, these, these things, these ideas, these images, say, might be entering you, uh, your, your unconscious. Maybe I'm getting this subliminal advertising, for example. Um, and I'm not even aware of the fact that I'm actually uh, looking or registering in my mind uh, a lady on a chair or something like that, right? So from a psychological perspective, presumably that's my unconscious that is somehow registering this. Is that, is that what we're talking about? Uh, okay, yes. Okay, so, uh, so my unconscious is registering something, and so we, we understand what we're talking about, but from a neurobiological perspective, well, look, I have photons that are coming from this particular image, and they're, they're hitting my optic nerve, and they're you know, triggering various neurons here and there, and there's mm -hmm. no clear split between what my unconscious is as opposed to what my conscious is. So I have a problem as a, as a neurobiologist yeah, yes. in being able to, because your terms, yeah, they're heuristic terms at some level, but I'm not even sure I understand what they actually mean from a neurobiological perspective. They are very far from understanding that, but I, I suspect most uh, people in that, in that profession would tell you that uh, 
the brain has to do something different for a conscious versus an unconscious thought, uh, since uh, the brain, people think with their brains. Uh, and so the difference between a conscious and unconscious uh, thought has to be some difference in the brain activity. Uh, it's, it's at least produced by that, uh, you know, the, uh, yeah. um, and how that gets, uh, that's considered the hardest problem. It's called the hard problem of consciousness is mm. how a physical thing can produce subjective experience. So, so maybe I can ask empirically your view on what the unconscious actually does in terms of how it affects our behavior. Do you think uh, for an average person their behavior is being affected a, a, a great deal by the unconscious, by what's actually happening around them without them being aware of it, without them noticing it? Without them noticing it? Uh, I'm that I suspect not so much. It is, does get noticed a lot of the processing will occur unconsciously. Um, there's nothing that's purely conscious, because everything, uh, consciousness is created by unconscious processes. Okay. Uh, so everything in consciousness. Remember, uh, I heard something recently that uh, put this very beautifully, the, the brain has no contact with the world. It's, it's stuck inside this heavy, dark shell uh, and cut off, and all it here's about the outside world is electrical impulses that uh, come in beep 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 here and there and so everything we think and know and do somehow it, it it's this this little lump of stuff getting uh, uh, electricity coming in and uh, putting together uh, our experience of uh, sitting here with you this afternoon um, it's it's a miracle scientists don't like that word but uh, <laughs> it's it's quite quite far gone. And so consciousness is not a direct pipeline to reality. It is the brain making a movie that's sort of a best guess of what's going on. And that's why it makes mistakes uh, and so on. There's the, uh, the uh, information coming into your eyes is split apart and processed in all these separate ways and then combined uh, back together. Where something is and what it is are processed uh, separately in the brain. Partly, I think, because uh, the difference between the two eyes is really important for figuring out where it is uh, sure. for space, but it's, it's useless for figuring out what it is. They're on the, the same page there. But anyway, so the who it is and what it is, or uh, what it is and where it is, rather, are put back together then. Either uh, those feature migration, if people see red squares and green triangles, uh, then they will make the mistake, and they've seen think they've seen some green squares too. So that's because the color and the shape are processed separately and then put back together. Uh, so that by the time something gets into consciousness, uh, it's been figured out. This is a big debate early in psychology, uh, in in the empirical psychology. The early labs trained people to introspect. They said, well, you don't really see a person or a wall or a table. You see. This, uh, this sensation of color and this uh, orientation. So they, they went on and on about this. And then the Gestalt psychologists rebelled against this and said, you know, I'm not seeing gray shade number 27. Um, I'm seeing a house and a tree and a car. Well, they're both right. The eyes are seeing these sensations, but then those are put through a lot of processing by the unconscious mind uh, so that by the time it shows up in consciousness, it has meaning. Uh, it, is, it is made sense of. I guess what's making me vaguely uncomfortable is that I think we look at the world a little bit differently. 
Um, and so I'm trying to understand what the words are that you're using in okay. terms of that. So let me, um, let me be more explicit with what I mean. So a couple times you're talking about the brain and you're talking about when we make a decision. And it seems like you're making uh, uh, a clear distinction between the brain and the mind. Um, and again, these are just words, but let, let, okay. me, let, me, let me be more, um, let, let me give you a sense as to where perhaps some of my confusion or, or, or at least different way of approaching things is. So for me, the brain and the mind are effectively the same thing. I, I look at the brain as, as an integral part of me. Um, and, and exactly as you said before with the uh, analogy of the support staff and so forth, I, I use the brain to be able to, uh, obviously, the brain is an integral part of me making a decision to do this as opposed to do that, or to see something, or to feel something, or to move in a particular direction. Um, but, uh, but I don't, I'm not sure I understand the, the physical relevance to breaking something into conscious and unconscious, as it were, any more than I see um, the relevance to breaking it into where neurons are firing here as opposed to where neurons are firing there. I'll grant you there's all sorts of stuff going on that I'm not aware of. That's clearly true. There are all sorts of physiological things I'm aware of that are, that are not true, and I'm obviously missing stuff that's out there that maybe later I'll reflect upon. But um, I guess I just see it more simply as I have this big neurophysiological toolkit which is an essential part of me, just like my arm is an essential part of me. And um, I make decisions uh, using this. And um, uh, well, maybe that's, that's it. Um, so I don't see that I don't see the, I don't see the need. And I'm not sure I understand why it's helpful to make a decision, make a distinction between something like the conscious and the unconscious. Do you see where I'm going with any of any of this, or? or? Um, I keep thinking I'm seeing where you're going, but. Uh, but you don't. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of uh, usage, I mean, I'm using the brain in a more uh, precise well, manner. But, that that is the physical well, organ. Yeah, but the, the, the there, there's, of course, there's a lot that's there behind that, and, and we we all know this. I mean, the, there are people that talk about the mind, and they make a distinction between the mind and the brain. Uh, there are people who believe that there is no distinction between the mind and the brain, and the the brain is just uh, the mind, rather, is a manifestation of of the brain, specifically brain states. And I'm one of those people. Um, I don't think that the language which is being invoked um, to describe the mind in its various manifestations is necessarily helpful or, or I'm not sure exactly what you're getting from, from making those distinctions. Okay. Uh, so, okay. so what, what confuses me in your argument is uh, you're saying it, there's no point in distinguishing conscious from unconscious and yet you're conceding that you know something's happening in your brain, although I don't really think you're conscious of what's going on in your brain per se. Uh, well, it depends on how you define. Well, sure, depends on how you so define. So, how many neurons are firing in your brain right now? Well, clearly, I don't know how many neurons are firing in my brain. <laughs> what part I mean, of that's the why brain I say it depends on how you define consciousness. Of course, yeah, I'm not okay. defining consciousness. I don't know how fast my heart is firing right now. I don't know. I don't know what's going yes. on in my leg. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your leg. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be combative uh, at all. I'm trying to understand, um, uh, well, let me just back up. So uh, 
I represent the philosophical position that my, my mind is a manifestation of my brain. Okay. Uh, if it's a manifestation of, then it's not. A, it's not. You know, I'm not saying it's the same thing. Well, what I mean by mind, I mean, it's, there's this question: of What do we mean by mind? What do we mean by I? What is the self mm -hmm. exactly? Right? These are very these are age-old questions, and of mm -hmm. course, I don't have knowledge mm -hmm. of what's happening neurophysiologically. But if it's if if what I mean by me as a conscious being, just like what you mean by you as a conscious being, is um, is is solely a product of what's actually happening in my brain. So, is okay. That that clearly could not be true. Are you believing that it's true? Why could it clearly not be true? Because the brain, in turn, is reacting to what's happening out in the world. Oh yeah, sure. The brain is my, not my, born my brain. No, no, no. I'm not saying my brain is a black box. My brain, in its interaction with everything else, obviously there's stuff coming in. It's getting signals and all the rest. Well, of but that. that's that adds a lot. I used to believe the same thing that you did, but what kind of got me is that uh, um, that the uh, how should I put this the uh, the content of thought I forgot what I was going to say um, we were saying that, that the belief that the the brain and mind are essentially the the, the same certainly I concede. And, and agree, it's not a concession even, uh, that everything that happens in your mind corresponds with something happening in the brain. Mm -hmm. But there is a higher level, it is more meaningful. A, uh, a neuron, so I mean, what happens in the brain is electro electrical activity and chemical reactions. Um, but uh, understanding a Shakespearean sonnet uh, is involving symbolic meanings and, and other things that are not themselves purely physical. The physical represents it. It's like the difference between a television set being the brain and the program that it's playing, uh, which would be the experience. Uh, yeah, you only see the program because of what's going on and everything you see on the screen is a product of what happens inside the TV set. Uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, you know, the President Obama is really nothing more than electrical activity inside the uh, TV set. Uh, there is, I think, a real President Obama and a real station filming him sure. and transmitting that. And so the brain is processing that symbolic information, the brain being the TV set this time, uh, and, and producing that. Okay, that, 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 so I want to leave Obama out of this because the poor guy was already... Uh we already discussed this wardrobe, and we brought him in too many, too oh, many okay. times. Let, let well, me take then, uh, let me take your sonnet example. Okay. So that's uh, so um, uh, clearly uh, there are incredibly um, complicated processes that that go on, and 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 I think one can impose some sort of hierarchy in terms of their complication, uh, in, in terms of our our level of understanding. So, um, or, or, or neuronal experience, right? I mean, it, it's fairly easy, not, not easy, but it's relatively easy for us to have some sense of what's happening in my, in my brain when I'm looking at your jacket and how I'm measuring it as the particular colors and the shapes and the space. That's complicated, but whatever. We can, we can have some sort of structure. The idea of my level of appreciation of a Shakespearean sonnet 
um, is vastly more complicated, I would imagine, in terms of its ability to be assessed neurophysiologically. But I'm not sure that it's a matter of kind rather than a matter of degree. So um, or, or am I missing the point? I, I, I mean, uh, I, I will I, I guess the point is, and maybe we're, we've gone into a dead end and I'd like to talk about some other things. but um, uh, I think this is interesting because it has to do with um, um, what what defines me, just as what defines mm -hmm. you in terms of individual agents, as you're saying, conscious agents actually moving forwards. Um, and again, to recapitulate, my view is that what I am, what I believe myself to be, what I believe my conscious being to be, is a manifestation of of the stuff that's in here and, and the environment, clearly, that's going on and its interaction thereof. Um, if you say, I used to believe that too, as I understand it, but there's more going on, I'm having a hard time understanding what that more going on actually is. Um, well, that's, you just went along with me when you said it's more than the brain, it's the uh, environment and the Well, the, the brain certainly that. interacts with the environment. I, I guess, so, so again, we can, we can probably drop this, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to the understanding of what, um, if, I'm a, if I'm a neurobiologist, as I said before, what is the utility in making this distinction between subconscious, or unconscious rather, and conscious? And I see that heuristically and empirically, we can measure things when people say, I didn't have an awareness of doing this, or I did have an awareness of doing that, and, and so that can be perhaps useful to predict behavior or not useful. I have no idea. Um, but I'm wondering if it has any absolute meaning to it. I'm wondering if it, if it has any, whatever, as the philosophers would say, ontological status, and I have a hard time understanding why it would. Um. I'm just tempted as a sidelight to make you go back and restate that last question in purely physicalistic terms, in terms of brain activities, and then you see how... Uh, no, but just because something is complicated doesn't mean it's impossible. I mean, there's so many things that I can't even begin to comprehend how I would do. I'm not a neurobiologist, but yeah. if I were, to be able to do. Um, and, and maybe it's even, for some physical reasons, in, princi in, in principle, impossible. I don't know what those physical reasons would be. Um, but just because something is difficult in principle doesn't mean that it's impossible. That's true. Um, but uh, but it could be. Um, okay. uh, either way, you can see the difficulty. You certainly need to say simply that uh, mind is nothing more than brain, and then you want to ask a question, uh, is it meaningful to make a distinction, and, and so on. Well, even even using the word meaningful, okay, that's, that's not a brain word. Fair enough. Uh, so, uh, Fair enough. And this gets onto a topic that's actually quite close to my heart, which is the reality of meaning. Um, I've uh, very reluctantly come to think that uh, uh, to, need to understand reality, especially uh, psychological reality, we need both to understand physical processes and meaning as, as essentially non-physical relationships. I mean, the relationship between a symbol, between, say, a flag of France and France, it's not a physical connection, like the molecules of France are uh, sure. exerting influence on it. It's a symbolic connection. Um, 
and uh, it's easiest perhaps to see with mathematics that uh, 7 times 8 equals 56 and it always did long before there were humans with brains good enough to figure it out. Right. It's not culturally relative. Every culture that learns multiplication gets the same answers. Right. Uh, there are some that haven't figured it out, but uh, when they do figure it out, they will get the same answer. It's, it's, it's objectively there. Uh, it's just, it's not a physical reality. It's a, it's a set of abstract relationships uh, that the physical brain evolved to be able to use and, and, and incorporate uh, so as to improve its survival and reproduction. Uh, but, so but the claim I think you're saying is that independent of whether or not the physical brain um, evolved to be able to understand it, 7 times 8 equals 56, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in a possible world where there are no physical brains, 7 times 8 would still equal 56. Is yes, that what I you're think saying? so, yes, yeah. It wouldn't have any effect on anything. Uh, well, not on us if we didn't get there. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, so, so this, of course, as you know, is, is a sort of standard Platonist, mathematical Platonist argument that there are these truths yeah. that, that exist yeah. somewhere outside of space and time. Um, just mm -hmm. like, I guess, uh, you would argue by extension there is some level of meaning. Your example of France, the flag of France and France, there are these mm -hmm. relations that exist outside mm -hmm. of space and time somehow. Um, it goes with the idea that all languages have basically the same concepts, just different uh, words for them. And they, they slice it a little bit differently here and there, but uh, translation is very effective. And there's very few thoughts that cannot be expressed in, uh, in one language. So it kind of suggests there's a universe of concepts that uh, all these languages, hundreds or actually thousands of languages all over the world, uh, invented pretty much to say the same thing. It's raining, I'm hungry, my child is sick. Let's go have sex. Uh, there's danger. There's a snake. Right. Um, but that, that that could be that our brains that could be human dependent, of course. That that are that are that there's something in the human brain which predisposes us to use language in a particular way, maybe even in that in an identical way, if we're clever enough to realize what identical means. Well, it would have been better if that had carried a little farther. It'd have been easier for us to be on the same page linguistically. Uh, but uh, apparently, nature couldn't quite put the language in. Instead, the brain is really well designed to learn the language uh, wherever it, uh, it happens. And there are several different kinds of grammatical structures and so on. Uh, but uh, all this making things complicated. Um, but on our interested in meaning of life, so meaning is, uh, life is a physical event, a physical process, and meaning is, is not a physical one. So the the big question of the meaning of life is difficult because you're putting, using oranges to understand apples or something like that. Right. How did we get to the meaning of life? Oh, I just I, meaning is non-physical reality. We're talking about oh, the, that the difference meaning. Between, that, the, sorry, I I... between what the brain is uh, uh, doing, that, uh, that your subjective experience of you. So people who distinguish brain from mind, and I, I'm certainly in agreement that uh, everything that happens in the mind is it's based on something that happens in the brain. It's just the brain is working with other stuff too, including meanings and non-physical relationships. It is representing them. Again, like the, 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 the TV set uh, represents the, uh, uh, the broadcast and uh, you know, shows a program. Uh, and the, the program is uh, in some sense distinct 
from the actual transistors and, and whatnot inside the TV set, sure. even though they are producing it, and that's the same way. I would see the brain and mind relationship in the same way. Uh, you know, nothing happens on the TV screen that <laughs> isn't a result of uh, what's going on inside the the, uh, the television set, and in the same way, nothing happens in our mind that isn't uh, produced by uh, neural activity. Right. Uh, so, so that analogy. The reason I was rebelling against the other analogy was I thought you were going to when again uh, when you were mentioning Obama was I thought you were referencing some entity that was outside of the entire TV mechanism. But if we're talking about what's on the screen, is this is is a manifestation of what's inside the box? Fine. Yes, but remember, what, part of what's inside the box did come from what was outside. Um, just as what happens in your what's in your brain, your brain isn't producing much out of it of its own. It is taking in information from the world. Uh, and uh, sure, but those realities exist you, in both in both cases, both examples. In uh, both examples, both yeah. realities exist. Yeah, right. I'm I'm all for, for right. reality. Right. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So. Um, uh, I guess what I what I had wanted to do um, was I, I I had wanted to move towards well, we certainly don't have to but I had wanted to move towards free will okay and what I mean by uh, free will is is some uh, what I mean by free will first of all is that I as an individual agent am sufficiently autonomous that I can make that whatever I uh, that I have a choice to be made between any two uh, options, mm -hmm. um, and I have it in my power to um, completely within my control to be able to um, take an action in one instance as opposed to taking an action in another instance or, or vice versa. Um, and my understanding is that um, that there has been some research into social conditioning and social factors that would be behind the scenes impinging upon um, my choices to the extent where I may not even be aware of the fact that um, I don't have complete autonomy in making those individual choices and that some people believe that for a combination of cultural factors I, I, I might think that uh, I can choose in whatever direction I want to but actually I am predisposed towards one particular choice rather than another particular choice. Yes, I think uh, the idea of complete freedom, uh, as if you would know everything, that's probably an ideal. It's, uh, the philosophers like to develop, to debate, <laughs> the philosophers like to debate the, the question of free will, is it yes or no, do people have it or not? In psychology, most things are on a continuum. Uh, so, uh, some acts are freer than others. Uh, but uh, is the unconscious uh, co contributing uh, factors? Well, everything that happens in consciousness is a result of the unconscious, so yes. Uh, can there be things that influence your decision that you're not aware of? Yes, there can. Uh, can you think you made a free choice when you were actually uh, tricked or primed? Uh, yes, you can. Um, so, uh, to me, uh, the, the, the requirement that it be complete or absolute is, is probably if you want to insist that free will is that, then there's probably not going to be anything that uh, that meets that criterion. Uh, but the difference between freer and less free, the people know that difference in their uh, uh, daily lives. Uh, they see it in others. It is uh, it is something that uh, that really happens. Um, 
and and to me, uh, the, the crucial thing is is the world often consists of there are multiple possibilities. So uh, evolution gave us the ability to choose them. Even in you know the, the beginnings of this go back to probably plants versus animals. <laughs> plants don't make decisions. They pretty much even when something comes over to eat them, they kind of stand still. Sure. Uh, animals move out of the way if something's right. coming over to eat them. Uh, but the animal has to have a central nervous system and a brain because it has to get it all coordinated and it, it makes choices. The purpose of that brain uh, is to uh, prolong the life of the animal that houses it. The beginnings of the central nervous system are movement, as in locomotion, moving around and uh, eating. Uh, so uh, the, the very earliest uh, beginnings for central decision making are uh, moving around to find food. Um, free will, uh, such as it is, or uh, to what, to the extent to believe in the term, this would be an advanced human, advanced in the evolutionary sense, uh, form of this. And then instead of just making decisions in the physical world, as am I going to climb this tree or that tree to look for some food? Uh, you have symbolic decisions about, uh, you know, I promise to. Uh, um, pay my mortgage every month, or pay my taxes, or uh, take care of my uh, spouse in marriage, uh, um, making, you know, uh, incorporating a lot of meaning uh, for functioning in the, uh, uh, in the cultural systems where we live. Uh, key difference, foundation of my thinking in the last 10 years uh, has been that uh, the distinctively human traits uh, are adaptations to make culture possible. That like all other creatures, we are animals. Like all other animals, we are animals. Uh, and uh, we all have to so solve the problems of survival and reproduction. You need a biological strategy. Every living thing has some strategy for doing that. Ours is a very unusual one as human beings. We create these complex social systems with meaning, uh, with uh, shared information, with interlocking roles and identities and moral uh, obligations and all that stuff. Uh, it works very well for us. I mean, we're living a lot better than uh, than most other creatures, um, but uh, uh, yeah, but it needs a lot more psychological capabilities to function in culture. Uh, and so, the traits that define us as human, and that's not all the traits. We are we are animals. We are social animals. All those things that we have in common with other animals, but the ones that set us apart are evolutionary adaptations to make possible this new strategy of living in a civilized uh, right. culture. Right. So um, that all sounds completely reasonable to me. Um, I can't... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I get frustrated when I hear people talk about free will because I have a different understanding of what the free will argument actually is. And, and it seems to me what, what, okay. what you're saying is um, there's no such thing as complete unfettered free will in the sense that we have influences all over the place on aspects of our behavior. Some of them we're aware of, some of them we may, we may not be aware yeah, of. Yeah, it's always situated, it's always fettered, it's always... Uh... And so insofar as we're not always aware of, of the past and the experience and, and what may be impinging on, on our decision process, we're not completely free. And that strikes me as, as yes, absolutely, 100%. I don't have any doubt about that. My understanding of 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 the the philosophical argument of free will, which uh, which people have been arguing about, is if there's a deterministic universe, and if there's materialism, and if we are material beings that act in accordance with a de deterministic law, 
then at some level, we have no choice in having evolved, complicated though it may be, from one state to another state. And as a result, everything that happens to us as material objects, just like this glass falling to the, to the ground and so forth, um, can, be, can be predetermined. Uh, and you can map that onto brain states or whatever it is that you want to do. And then, and then you're left with arguing that, mm -hmm. uh, that everything we do is, is in accordance with some uh, big algorithm in the sky, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, and thus our, our belief that we are acting, and this comes back to what we were saying before about what it is to be conscious in me and so forth as a manifestation of all this other stuff. But my belief that when I'm going into uh, a store and opting for that pair of shoes as opposed to that pair of shoes is actually um, uh, predetermined by some super duper algorithm somewhere, mm -hmm. and as a result, I don't have free will. So that that to me is the is the philosophical argument of, mm -hmm. of free will, which is very different from what you were saying. Yeah, and I have uh, I I don't even have. Um, I'll say something even stronger. I, I find it impossible to believe anybody would argue with what you just said. Um, Good. But uh, <laughs> do, do people argue with, with, with what you said? I mean, it, it's... Oh, it's, that uh, evolution for culture? Um, um, well, it is not, it's not a widely shared view, although when I bring it up, it does seem to persuade people. Uh, there's been a tendency, because in, in social psychology, the influence of evolutionary theory has been so strong, there's a lot of emphasis on being social animals and what we have in common with other animals. It's not nearly as much on what sets us apart and makes us different. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that's, that's been one thing that I've been emphasizing. I see. Um, so, so there's a sense that there's a sense of an evolutionary continuum, and why should we draw the line at, at, at humans in some ways? Is, is this, is this well? The it's it's more that emphasis. You know, they they aren't thinking things down to the rigor of uh, you know, philosophers of having everything figured out. It's just uh, uh, we're social animals. So you know, they talk about why do we help other people? Well, uh, we will help our close relatives more than our friends, and our friends more than strangers. You know. Give you, who would you run in to save in a burning building? Well, if it's your mother uh, or your, uh, um, your, your high school uh, track coach, right. uh, you'd go and get your mother. Um, Unless you're on the track. And, and so they say, well, look, they're like, they're like uh, we're just like other animals because they, they help kin. Right. Uh, but we need more attention to the fact that humans will help total strangers. We'll donate money to... Uh, uh, fight disease or uh, reduce poverty sure. or, or, you know, in, in other parts of the world with people who don't know us, who don't sure. look like us, who don't, sure. uh, will never hear of us or be grateful. Also, as you say, I mean, look around you. Look, look at all the structures that have been built yes. uh, by, by humans. Look at the yes. level of society. Look at the level of integration. Look at mm -hmm. all the different nets all over yeah. the place. Look at, yeah. look at the structures that have been built through cooperation yeah. and collaboration and culture and so forth. Yeah. Now, returning to the, the free will debate, I've been listening to this arguments for a couple of years. There are actually three different arguments I think people are having. One is causality. Some people think determinism is just causality, uh, and uh, that free will means that it's some kind of exemption from causality. Uh, and that I don't, I don't really find that all that persuasive. I mean, to me, free will would just be there's so many different kinds of causes already. It's just be another kind of cause. There's no, uh, there's no exemption from causality. Uh, the second is the reductionism. Um, can everything at a high level be explained by what happens at a lower level? Uh, are we just uh, biological organisms with brains, which are in turn just chemical reactions? 
which are in turn just uh, physical processes of atoms and molecules. Uh, and uh, on that, I think the, the, the weight of scientific opinion is the answer is no, that uh, at each, each level new kinds of causes come into play, that uh, you want to study love at the level of uh, gravity and uh, between the electrons and... Uh, no, it's an attractive force gravity. <laughs> uh, that uh, you know, all the interesting stuff disappears as you get down to those uh, those lower levels, and you know they, they are influenced by them and swayed, and they have to work through them. They can't, nothing can violate the laws of physics, uh, but a lot of things happen that uh, sure. the laws of physics are not going to explain. And so, uh, in, in human terms, the psychology of a person versus the activity of a brain—you can't do anything without your brain. Uh, but there is. There is more than that if you incorporate meaning and understanding the social system and especially move up a level to the economy and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the legal structure of the uh, United States and the, a political unity. Uh, you know, that's not all in the, the brain. The brain is helping your body participate in that. Um, so reductionism is the second, and I'm, uh, I'm against that in that sense. Uh, and the third one is the, uh, the original meaning of determinism, which is there's only one possible future. That's the predestination debate. Uh, to me, if you embrace that, then that is incompatible uh, with, uh, with free will. But I think the idea is back, or the way people want to argue it is that somehow there has to be something in you that can create different possible outcomes out there. Uh, but I think that's backwards. I think the outcomes, the different possibilities are already out there, and so nature gave us the capacity to choose uh, among them. Just like I said, with the beginning of the small animal, uh, could choose to go this way or that way, so as to get to get food better. Um, and, uh, one thing I've been doing research on recently is how people think about the future, and uh, determinism would be completely useless. You know, to tell people you know, when you go to choose what you're going to have for dinner tomorrow, or who you're going to marry, or, or who's going to be on your next show, uh, to tell you, well, it's actually inevitable. It's been determined since the Big Bang. That doesn't help you at all. Sure. You still have to make the decision. And the, the fact is that the future presents itself as a, a matrix of possibilities, some constraints and dangers and opportunities and, and other things. But it's, these things are possible, uh, but not definite. And that's why we have an agent inside us to make choices to try to produce the outcome that's better for us than the outcome that's, that's worse for us. So um, that, again, is there in the squirrels and dogs and, and so on, but in the human being that's processing meaning, uh, meaning in the sense of morality and economics and uh, cultural symbolism and um, legal obligations and all these other things, uh, that, uh, that is uh, the 2.0 uh, version uh, of the simple, uh, the, the chipmunk choosing whether to run up this tree or that tree. Um, tell me a little bit more about the research into the future that you're you're thinking about now that you just alluded to. What specifically are, are you imagining, and oh. what sort of experiments might you do? And, and well, it started uh, with uh, my friend Marty Seligman was uh, writing an essay. He said, "You know, psychology tends to explain behavior based on what happened in the past, uh, but uh, when I do stuff, I do it based on the future." Uh, the, the the big traditional theories in psychology were the, the Freudian psychoanalysis, which is your adult self as a product of what happened in your childhood experiences, and then the uh, reinforcement history, the rats uh, learning uh, and so on. So those are both what you're doing now as a result of the past. 
but he said, uh, no, there's really a lot more emphasis on the future. And uh, um, so I, I got interested in this, and we wrote a paper with a couple of philosophers, and, uh, um, and then uh, he managed to get a, a big grant to support other research there. So uh, we've been... Uh, this grant has actually arrived. This grant is not in the future. It's uh, the grant has actually <laughs> arrived. Uh, some of it lies in the future and some in the past. Um, so we are conducting studies. We've, uh, we didn't know how much people think about the future uh, and so on. So we've just done this giant study where uh, people were... Well, actually, use their cell phones, but it was like a beeper. Every so often it would beep. And they'd have to stop and say, okay, what were you thinking about? Uh, just when the beep went off. It was the last thought you had, and then we had, was it about past, present, future, uh, or none of the above, or all of the above? So to get a uh, sense of how preoccupied people are about the future, or how much they're thinking about the future, is this? We wanted to learn, and what correlates with it, uh, and so forth. And we've uh, been struggling to <laughs> analyze, you get a ton of data with, with sure. this, but uh, uh, for example, uh, um, emotion, in terms of happiness, uh, is, uh, is highest uh, when you're uh, focused in the in the present, you feel the nicest. Uh, the more you move into the past or the future, the worse uh, you you feel. Hmm. Uh, meaning is the other way around. Uh, meaning uh, is is higher into the past and future, and meaning in particular connects across time. Uh, that uh, that. Uh, okay, hold on. I I I've lost you. Uh, meaningful so, so, thoughts. So were... tell me tell, tell me what you mean by mean by meaning and, and oh, and so the we have people rate how meaningful were your thoughts when the. Uh, when the buzzer went off. And so their thoughts that are based in the past and the future are, are higher. Are rated as higher in meaning. Uh, yeah, it was more meaningful. I see. And especially when they checked two or three of the, uh, if they checked all three, I mean the highest, most meaningful thoughts on average were the ones where they checked past and present and future. Um, present and future is a particularly important category. Uh, those are also highly meaningful. Um, if it's just past or present or future, it's it's less meaningful yet. And if it's just uh, if there's no meaning, no time at all, then it was the least. And when you when you do these sorts of experiments, you do them. Uh, you said there's a ton of data. You're doing them with people uh, uh, locally here in in Florida, or do you do them across the United States, or do you do them internationally, or or, or because I can imagine there would be some cultural factors that would come into play at some point. Yes, yes. Well, it's a tremendous job to run one of these things. Uh, this particular study we ran in Chicago because the uh, uh, the the lead guy Willem uh, Hoffman was uh, at University of Chicago, um, and uh, he had the software and uh, he was able to uh, to get it done. So uh, and something like five hundred people. Uh, in the city of Chicago, or beepers for about three days. Uh, the previous one we had done was on desire, and we did that one in uh, Germany because uh, he had been there. Uh, actually, he was at the University of Würzburg. So uh, um, we had, uh, I think, 200 Germans uh, at that point. And yes, if we could somehow do it in, in uh, rural Africa or uh, um, a war zone in, in uh, Asia or in the Middle East or something that would possibly bring in some other uh, things. It's just uh, the practicalities, practicalities sure. are formidable. But I can imagine that that would be a common concern for you in a whole realm of areas of social psychology. If you're trying to look right. at social and cultural influences on humans, then uh, there's always this pressure to make sure that you're painting as 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 way uh, as wide a, a picture as you possibly can in terms of humans in different societies and different pressures, and you might always find, 
yeah. scratch that. You might find that you, that you'll have uh, local effects that that will that will overshadow a more general phenomenon that you're looking for. Yeah, there's uh, there's periodic concern about that, and uh, yeah, especially you're, you're probably three quarters of the study is done at universities with uh, students, just because they happen to be there and have time to be in the uh, experiments. That's a, right. a sample of convenience. Uh, periodically, people get all worried about this. We're not not studying real people, as if students aren't real somehow. Uh, but and they go out and, and look out in the in the world, and mostly things turn out the same if you get a different kind of sample. Uh, now we don't have a lot of say going into the wilds of Papua New Guinea or anything, but uh, uh, effects might be larger or smaller. There might be different ways of dealing with them. But basic effects, like you're more likely to act aggressively toward me if I insult you than if I praise you. Okay, I mean, student samples will show that. That's probably true everywhere. And again, the amount of aggression might vary and, and so sure. on. But it's very, very, really going to flip. So that's the other way around that people attack people who praise them and uh, not people who criticize them. Uh, so uh, a lot of the things will be true. But, uh, but I think it's something we always have to be on guard for. And, uh, science disciplines you not to overgeneralize, and so we shouldn't generalize uh, wildly. How, the, the question of how big cultural differences are uh, is itself a profound and somewhat controversial one. The, uh, the, uh, the cultural people, the anthropologists in particular, you know, their career goals are set up to prove that you're, you're to find something different, and so the whole ethos in the field is that every culture is different, and cultures can make people totally different ways, uh, and so on. Uh, I remember one anthropologist saying, uh, uh, to illustrate this, if, if you're an anthropologist and you got a grant, and you spent two years out in the field with this, uh, this tribe or whatever, and came back and wrote a report and said, well, they're pretty much like everybody else. <laughs> you wouldn't get another grant very quickly. You wouldn't get another grant for a long time. So, uh, and that's not trivial, that's really uh, yeah. you know, a push to uh, find something unique and, and special about them. Um, and so the difference among cultures has been overstated. I've seen how far it's come down since I was a student uh, uh, back in the, in the 70s and even before that in the 60s there was this total widespread belief in cultural relativity to the point that you just couldn't understand what it's like for someone to be in love who's in I say uh, an Asian you know, person, uh, you know, it, it's so, so Meaningless for even even, but now we think no, they're what they're in love with. They might have a few other wrinkles or complications, but it's it's not all that different from from what we do. Um, and then so for a while it was sort of the opposite, uh, uh, ignoring cultural differences. And then people said, no, there really are some some cultural differences. But uh, I think the emphasis has now been to to identify a few big key ones rather than to assume that every culture is so different that you can't right. generalize from one to another. And then, and then looking, presumably, at, at the effect on the human condition of whatever those key ones might happen to be, under the assumption that we're all, at some level, basically the same. Yes. I mean, I'm very interested in culture, but I'm not interested in the differences in culture so much as the, uh, the similarities, because, again, I'm looking for human nature. So I kind of want to see the things that are in common among all all cultures are all is too much for social science, but say over 90, 95%. Um, cultural differences to me are in many cases different solutions to the same problems. 
that cultures, as, as Marvin Harris and the cultural materialists said, uh, uh, whatever else cultures do, they have to provide structures so that people can eat and sleep and uh, have babies and uh, you know take care of themselves in, in various ways. So providing the basic material conditions of life, that's the original basic function of culture. And you can solve them in different ways. I mean, like with sexual morals, you can have everybody can have sex with anybody anytime, or you can have only have sex with the person you're married to, one person in your life, or you have something else. There's no perfect system, but uh, but it helps to have everybody kind of be in the same uh, agreeing on the same values. That uh, once the culture disagrees about its values, it's harder to get get things done. Uh, even with something as simple as uh, cars, you can drive on the right, you can drive on the left. <laughs> it doesn't matter as long as everyone else is doing the same thing. Uh, so the agreement, in, in a way, matters more. And, and so yes, there are cultural differences as to whether people drive on the right or right on the left. Drive on the left. But uh, there are different solutions to the same problem. If I could ask you to present me with three questions that are particularly bothering you. If I were an omniscient being and I could answer any questions, scientific questions that you might have, um, hmm. what would they be? <laughs> I, I stopped believing in omniscient beings, so I'm like, well, I'm my, not omniscient, my, so my you're, you're, you're in luck. But my list has <laughs> lapsed. Uh, um, so what would I most like to know now? Um, well, I would like to learn the relationship of mind to body, and some of the things we've talked about with the willpower and how is it tied into glucose and adenosine and uh, other processes there, how ultimately does uh, inanimate activity of uh, chemicals in the brain produce the subjective experience of consciousness. Uh, so that would be one I'd like to know. Um, um, I've, uh, there are things I'm curious about. I, I guess this would be a low priority for me because it's not that, uh, not that relevant to anything I'm interested in, but uh, um, there are policy implications when I was working on the sex literature. Um, does does pornography and that sort of thing, does it increase desire or does it satisfy desire? Uh, it's particularly relevant, my wife pointed out, uh, with the, um, the pedophiles. And, and you know, these people are, are universally vilified uh, and you know, with, with good reason if they're taking advantage of children. We've got to protect the children. But it raises the issue, you know, they can't help having those desires. They're just supposed to not act on their desires. So, uh, as, as my wife is suggesting, it should become possible to make virtual child porn. Um, and if it would satisfy these people, it might even reduce crimes against actual children. On the other hand, if it uh, increases the desire, then it would increase crimes against children and make it worse. And uh, that, uh, you know, I just don't know the answer to. And uh, I'd be, I'd be curious to know. It would be better for society to know that one way or the other. Um, and uh, let's see, my third one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, I'd like to have a good account of the emergence of social organization up through and including economic and political organization. Uh, there are some very impressive books on that that I've been reading, but uh, uh, it's a big problem you know, to put it all together. Uh, figure out how that happens. So uh, I would uh, you know, like to get a, a grasp on that. You know, how does, in a sense, that's what goes down to the, the very beginnings of how we got chemistry from physics, is that matter lends itself to organization. Um, and so this is a level of emergent structure at the socio-political level. How does emergence happen, yeah, at, at the higher levels? Well, I'd like to understand the emergence per se, is how does, uh, uh, how does, how do things take on new levels of organization? How did we get from chemicals, which are not alive, to living things? Uh, and how do we get from living things to things with uh, with agency that can make choices? And how do we get there to from there to Shakespeare sonnets and uh, the iPhone and global economy oh, and yeah, all that? Yeah, you had me right up until you made an equivalence between Shakespeare sonnets and the iPhone. Oh, it wasn't an equivalence. It was supposed <laughs> to be the difference that I was, uh, you know, still a, uh, but a different kind of product uh, standing at the apex of uh, technological development as. Uh, Plus the apex of uh, you know, artistic uh, uh, creativity. Um, the point was, I was trying to illustrate things as culminations of. Uh, no, I was kidding. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Could use the model T. <laughs> Anything else? Anything I haven't asked? Uh, we we haven't. There are a lot of things we haven't talked about, but uh, and obviously we could go on a lot longer. But I don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there anything that you'd like to say that? I, you didn't have a chance to say. Um, what was on your list again? Oh, I have all sorts of things on my list, but the list can go. <laughs> the list can go. I mean, we didn't talk about the need to belong. We didn't talk very much about uh, human sexuality and the, the impact of culture. You want to uh, do we didn't talk fifteen minutes on one of the other of those. Sure. All right. Um, um, you pick. I think you should pick. I think you should pick what you feel most most strongly about. We didn't pick about irrational behavior either, which is uh, and and why people do the darndest things and self defeating um, things that are that are not in their best interests. Um, maybe we can talk about that, um, or not, or 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 or. That one is not as current in my work. Okay, so let's talk about some. Let's do. Do one of the others. Okay. You, you like the need to belong? I, I, I love the need to belong. So I talked, just, just to set it up, uh, I had the good fortune of talking to Barbara Fredrickson not too long ago. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, um, and we talked, obviously, about uh, aspects of her work with the, the, the basic human need of making connections and how important that is and the physiological effects that that actually has. Um, and the ramifications and so forth. So one specific question is, have you worked with her on any uh, particular um, on any particular work in the past? And would you like to in the future? Um, I would like to. I have not uh, worked with her. Uh, um, I know she's pretty busy. I actually see her fairly regularly because we go to many of the same conferences and uh, um, I always have an interesting conversation with her. Um, so I've uh, been able to keep up with what, what she's doing reasonably well. Um, but no, I have not done something. The thing is, at this stage, you work a lot with your graduate students, and I've got to take care of all mine, and she works with hers. And, uh, if some graduate student would want to work with both of us, that would uh, facilitate the process. But uh, 
So what, what are you thinking about now in, in terms of your own research and uh, with respect to the need to belong and, and where you'd like to go uh, to explore that in the future? Okay, well, the, the need to belong is a big change in my thinking too. It had, it had, oh. Already in graduate school, I looked at psychology and tried to read a lot and absorb the information. And there was a tendency to explain everything as basic processes happening inside the person. And I thought, well, maybe there's more of an interpersonal dimension that people give lip service to, but it is supposedly social psychology. Uh, so uh, I remember there were a lot of discussions that people are concerned about their self-esteem and how they'll react to failure or criticism or success as it depends on concern with their self-esteem. I, I remember it was, ended up being my dissertation. I said, well, maybe people are a little concerned with that, but they're probably a lot more concerned with how other people esteem them. And so we gave people praise or criticism either confidentially or, or publicly. publicly that other people are going to meet somebody who had read this and, and so on. The effect on the self-esteem should be the same. It's, you know, what it tells you about yourself was identical. Uh, it was the same printout, but, uh, but boy, they reacted much more if, uh, if somebody else knew about it. So I've sort of been uh, a bit of a contrarian in social psychology saying we need to be more social. Uh, after that time, indeed, social psychology went a lot more inside the single mind with uh, most of psychology is now done. Uh, social psychologists, uh, most of social psychology is now done by having someone sit at a computer and make ratings. So it seems like a very solitary activity. <laughs> That's ironic. Uh, yes, it is ironic. <laughs> but, uh, so I've been on this campaign to say, you know, people relate to others. A lot of things are much more interpersonal. Um, than, than we've assumed. And there's the idea that, well, okay, people interact, but what they do and say to each other is a product of all the things going on inside them. And I try to turn it around and say, inner processes serve interpersonal functions, that what's going on inside you is there to facilitate relating to others. And basically, nature doesn't care what's going on inside you, what your self-esteem is, or how happy you are, or anything like that. Uh, it doesn't uh, have any any clear effect on your survival reproduction, but what other people think of you, that is crucial. Uh, that you know, for species like ours, yeah. uh, if others don't accept you, you're not going to survive, let alone reproduce. Um, so, uh, I remember uh, hearing uh, some psychologists uh, talking about uh, the idea that uh, that the fear of death is the, the most important motivation. That's what drives people. It goes back to Ernest Becker. Uh, in the denial of death, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book in the 60s, arguing humans are the only creatures who know our mortality. And, and these uh, social psychologists had done some, some experiments, uh, and so on. They were developing this, uh, this, this big theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they were saying anxiety. Anxiety is really all about death. And I, I was listening and saying, I don't know that anxiety is really all about death. I, I don't have much anxiety, but it's not over that I'm going to die. It's that, you know, what if my girlfriend would dump me or something like that. Uh, so I went out and looked at the literature and read all the anxiety research, which I didn't know anything about. And, well, yeah, there's some fear of death, but it's mostly fear of rejection and uh, lack of belongingness. And then we published that, and there were a bunch of uh, commentaries. And, and when it was all done, one of the, the guys said, well, you know, you were right about anxiety, but it's more than that. This was Mark Leary. And you know, I wrote that paper then, The Need to Belong. It took us several years. And so we tried to relate this, this urge to connect with others to uh, to uh, mental processes, to emotions, to uh, health, to uh, yeah, everything. Uh, we could, and it, it, over and over, it had huge effects. 
so uh, papers have now been cited in the scientific literature something like 8,000 different uh, mm -hmm. times. It's, a, it's had a real big impact on people. It wasn't like we discovered something new that people want to be with others, but it had always been sort of the background of all the theories of human nature. And we said, no, this, this should be a central thing. That, uh, that you know, it's a very strong motivation. It's one of the, uh, the most fundamental things. Uh, that's why uh, rejection uh, is, is bad, why people have anxiety about, uh, about that. So let's do lab work. We started studying, well, what happens when that need is thwarted? And we did a lot of research on uh, what's happening when we reject people. And, you know, in the lab we can't do anything comparable to, say, getting a divorce or uh, you know, being turned down by the, the, the medical school you wanted to go to. Uh, but uh, people react very strongly, even to slight, you know, being rejected by somebody they just met in the lab uh, and talked to for a few minutes, and then the person doesn't want to interact with you anymore. And oh, that uh, that produced, you know, big effects on, on on cognition. That people suddenly their their intelligence uh, we gave them an intelligence test after a, a simple rejection like that, and their scores dropped by like twenty five percent. That uh, you know something. Something happens there. Uh, we uh, they become more aggressive. They're less helpful to others. Which you know, if you're being rejected, you, you should want to be the opposite. Be more of a nice guy. There's something wrong with you. But uh, it's like we make ourselves be a good person based on that other people are going to uh, include us because that's how we live as a species. We make connections. If they're not going to include us, I'm not going to bother being a good person. Uh, even people stop self-regulating. They don't. Uh, um, change their behavior as much. Um, the, uh, the one thing that didn't work out is we thought being rejected would produce this wave of, of being upset. There'd be, everything would be mediated by a real intense distress uh, reaction. And we just didn't find that. We found big behavioral effects, but we could never get people to say they were, they were really upset. And uh, this became, because intuitively, I describe our procedures, and people say, oh, I'd be so upset if that happened to me. So the procedures are you, you come in to the lab and with a group of five, six other people and you all talk for a while and then we say you're going to pair off. Everybody write down two names of who you'd like to work with. And then I come to your cubicle and say, oh, nobody picked you. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, people think, oh, I'd be, I'd be crying in my soup. But mm -hmm. when we did that, nobody showed any, we even measured emotion half a dozen different ways. They're feeling nothing. And what we gradually came to realize is that you just sort of go numb. Um, Leary, my, my colleague there, uh, he and uh, um, um, McDonald had a, a, a paper serving mostly animal research that when animal pups are, uh, when animals are rejected, like right. the rats thrown out of the litter, they become insensitive to physical pain. They, uh, th th there's a sort of analgesic reaction, probably because of release of opioids or something like that. But you, you become well. Th this this ties into what I was going to ask you before, uh, because when I asked uh, a long time ago in the conversation, when we were talking about energy differentials, and I said, might this apply to other domains? So, might it be possible that you could measure uh, pre-rejection and post-rejection people in terms of some energy differential, which which would be analogous to what you did before with with. Uh, with willpower and glucose and so forth. Yeah, possibly you could. Uh, we have, there's always a question of how to measure energy. We measure their self-control after rejection, which gets worse, although it looks like give they're still... Little, give them the squeezy thing again. They're still, well, we've done thing? stuff like that, yeah. Okay. They're fully, they're capable of it, they just don't want to bother. 
<laughs> if you give them a reason to, then they will do fine. It's, it's not like it really takes something out of them, but, okay. uh, but then it's complicated. Other, you know, others can still suck it up to, uh, um, and, and do well. Uh, but it, it looks more like that they're, uh, they're able, but they're just not, not willing. So this is num numbness, as you said. The before. numbness is a different effect, and that, uh, that shuts down their emotion system. It makes them less empathic toward others. As we found that rejected people will be more aggressive, they'll hurt others more, and they'll help others less. And that's probably because um, they just don't empathize, they don't feel the other's pain. Uh, and they don't realize that their emotion system is shut down. Uh, we had one, there's this thing called affective forecasting, which is can people predict their future emotional reactions? And they tend to predict a much bigger reaction than they actually will have. Uh, you can do that with uh, like football games, like you know, the football game next month, how happy will you be if your team wins? And, how unhappy if they lose. Um, so we we uh, we tried that after rejection, and uh, sure enough, they didn't care. They were uh, they, everybody else said, "Oh no, I'll be so happy we win this game, and if we lose, it'll be like on a seven-point scale, it'll be a one, the worst thing I can mm. imagine." Just hard to believe in itself. Uh, but uh, um, but no, and uh, the rejected people on the seven-point scale, they're like maybe a three. Is this, is this correlated across ages as well? I could imagine that, that people who were older who had had to face rejection more times would have some of the numbness maybe diminish as opposed to some younger yeah, people. Yeah, that I don't know. We haven't gotten older uh, people in for that one. That's, that's more difficult. Uh, we were doing this with the pain sensitivity measure. So you had to give people pain to... Because uh, um, we replicated the effect that sure enough when you're rejected you just don't feel the pain. Okay. A little, Physi little physically, you, Physical pain, yeah. Really? We put uh, a little thing that, that squeezes their finger and it gradually squeezes harder and harder. And you say once when it starts to hurt, and you say again when you need it to stop, that it's hurting too much. And both of those came way later after they'd been rejected, as opposed to accepted or neutral control. Um, rejection somehow just made the pain not, not bother you for a much longer time. So maybe, maybe that could be used for medicinal purposes. Maybe people could... Uh you said that as, as an anesthetic, they just well, reject what, people instead of having... What it, what it did actually lead to, Nathan Duwal, my, my student, he came to me and said, well, does that mean if we gave people aspirin as a painkiller that they would be less bothered by rejection? And, and this seemed to me like the craziest idea, but he had several other things work and I built up some uh, credibility. So I said, go ahead and try it, I'll, I'll give you the thousand dollars for the, whatever we need for pills and whatnot. So I did it and damn, it worked. Uh, that people were less bothered by rejections. In everyday life, we sort of had them keep a diary for a couple of weeks of, you know, how well, did you have hurt feelings today? Um, hurt feelings is something people will say before they're actually expressing emotional distress. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the placebo group, it stayed high that uh, they had some hurt feelings all along. Uh, the, the people who were taking uh, acetaminophen, Tylenol, uh, every day after about the ninth day, um, they, it wasn't, they were having a significant drop in, uh, <laughs> in, in hurt feelings and went on to do lab studies. Uh, he says, had another one, uh, he's gone on to do more work on this, uh, he's at the University of Kentucky. Uh, he found, he was tracking loneliness in a, a large sample of students across the year. And uh, he, well, not having people talk to you tends to make you lonely, uh, except, he said, for the chronic marijuana smokers. Uh, and uh, he didn't know that, why that did it. He went and looked up the molecule, which is fairly similar to the uh, acetaminophen. And 
I know California gives medical marijuana for pain relief, and apparently it works. Uh, so uh, it works for uh, social pain, I, I guess, uh, as they call it as well. Uh, so, so again, there's this physiological, uh, psychological yes. link that's, yes. so, that's so strong. Yes, it's just yes. manifesting in a different way this manifesting time. Manifesting in a different way, yeah. Yep, we found uh, both psychological and, and physiological effects. So rejection, again, that goes to the core of what we're, uh, what we're all about. Is, uh, you don't need everybody to love you, but you need some people <laughs> uh, to like you. Yeah. Well, that was great. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Okay. That was great. Good. That was a lot of fun. All right. I Thank think you. so too. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Social Psychology, along with separate discussions with Carol Dweck, Barbara Fredrickson, Yanko Tipsarevich, and Philip Zimbardo. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.